me 6, we're in verse 69. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, raise your hand, Pat will bring you a Bible. Um, we want you to have a Bible with you. So if anybody needs to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand, Pat will bring you a Bible. Um, hey, also we have, I, I don't know if I see them on the back cards, but we have these purple connection cards. And they used to be everywhere, and now I'm not seeing them because I said it, I'm announcing it. But they're there. Okay, so if a um, couple things. If you're new to church and you would like to fill out a connection card, you're welcome to. Again, you don't have to, but uh, if you do, I'll probably knock on your front door. Um, no, I'm teasing. I won't do that. But sign, sign up, and, and basically there's a box on there that says, I would like a call from the pastor. And basically what that means is maybe you're new to church, you got some questions about our church, you need prayer, you want to, you, wanna, you know, find out some information. So if you check that box and you, and you leave it in the back there in that glass thing, when I get those during the week sometime, I'll just give you a call and chat and welcome you to church. And um, I'd love to call everybody who's new and chat with them and welcome, to our, welcome them to our church. But again, I don't want to call anybody who doesn't want to be called. So, But if you fill that card out and you check that box, I will give you a call. And then also um, on there is a place for prayer requests. So if you have something going on in your life, I want to tell you that we take those prayer requests very seriously and that we, we do commit them to prayer. Usually about two weeks, we keep them in rotation. And then after two weeks, they'll, they'll, they'll fall out of rotation. So if you've submitted a prayer request and um, it's been more than two weeks, you can submit another one. But on that purple card, you write your prayer request, you drop it in, the, in the, uh, either the offering bag when it comes by or in that, on that back table in that glass thing. And then um, myself, the men's group, um, we'll, we'll keep you guys in prayer for a couple weeks. And then, um, and then also, as Jerry just so kindly pointed out, we have um, on that back table as well some business cards that are invite cards. And so we, we keep thousands of those under that table or boxes and boxes and boxes of thousands of those invite cards. So we encourage you guys as, you know, if you're, if you're part of our church, take those invite cards with you. Have them in your wallet when you go to, um, I think Pat announced a couple weeks ago, when you go to lunch or you go to dinner and, and you know, you leave your tip, leave one on the table. But if, if, if you were a bad uh, uh, example or you didn't leave a tip, don't leave an invite card to our church, okay? So if, if you're rude to your waiter and you left her a penny under the cup, don't tell her you come to church here, Okay. But if you leave a big tip and you were nice, then uh, invite your waitresses and, and the folks and, and just keep those if you're anywhere and you have an opportunity, your neighbors, your friends, and especially around Easter. You know, Easter is, for whatever reason, a season where we as a ministry and an, have an opportunity to reach people that are far from God. You know, part of what we do as a church, and I want to share with you guys briefly before we get into Matthew, and I will keep it brief, but, but vision-wise for a church is that we, we have kind of multi-facets of what we're trying to accomplish as a ministry, Right? So one of the things that, that, that the Bible says, and the Bible's full of the idea that, that people are to believe, trust and believe, believe on the Lord Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus. And so, and so part of what we want to do is we want to share the gospel. And John said in 1 John, I write this so that you might believe. And, and so the purpose of the, the word of God and the teaching and the gospel is so that people might believe that are unbelievers. And we as a church and a ministry, listen, you as Christ followers, especially as a part of our church, if we want to be like the church of Philadelphia, which we do, that's the church in the book of Revelation that we want to emulate, that we want to be like. Well, one of the defining factors for the church of Philadelphia is that they were a church that was on mission. They were a church that was mission minded. And that doesn't mean that they sent missionaries to foreign countries. They did that as well. But being missional is where you work. It's where you live. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your life. Just as a Christ follower, whether you're somebody who goes to foreign missions or sends somebody to foreign missions, being missional means that you're a person as a Christ follower who understands that you're to share the gospel with other people, that people are dying and going to hell, and, and you have some safety um, feature. You have something that could save their lives, and it burns inside of us to share the gospel with them. I was, when I first came to Tooele six years ago, I was bivocational for three years before I became full-time on staff as, as a pastor here. And um, I, I remember talking to a guy at work and sharing the gospel with him. And all I talked about was God. If you, if you were around me or in my station, pretty much we talked about God. Maybe the Dodgers, Lakers a little bit, but um, 
we, we talked about God. And, and this one guy would get so frustrated with me. And he would say, how come all you Christians always want to push your beliefs on everybody else? How come you guys always, you know, you feel like you got to always be telling somebody about God? And I tried my best to explain to him that, 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 that I have a passion. And because I believe that, that, that the reality is I believe that if people don't know Jesus and the gospel, they're going to go to hell. And I don't want to see anybody go to hell. I don't want to see anybody miss the, the, the salvation, the free gift that God gives. And so, yeah, I'm driven because I care for people because God told me to. And because that's who I am as a Christ follower is somebody who wants to share Jesus with people. And, and, and I have a passion. I have a, I have a burning desire because, you know, other people don't have a burning desire to, to share what is heavy in their lives because they, they also don't have a conviction that, that that information is going to change or save somebody's life. You know, the story I share all the time, true story, but I love it. You know, Lexus, and this was like in the 90s, Lexus had just developed a new technology in safety. And, and the car industry and car, car companies are very, very competitive. And when Lexus developed this new safety feature for their vehicles, they took the patents and, and the technology and they shared them with all the other car companies that were out there. And they gave this technology and this development to any car company that wanted to have it or use it because Lexus said that it was a matter of saving lives. And when it comes to saving lives, they were going to share that. And so for us as Christ followers, it, it can be a matter of, share, of saving lives. Now, again, um, we, we got to walk that fine line, right, between being somebody who, who's not afraid to share our faith or being that Christian that's just annoying, being that Christian that's just, you know, bothersome and, and that nobody wants to be around you, you know, and they see you come and they go the other way. You don't want to be that guy either. Or be that Christian that's just weird or obnoxious or that Christian who takes the Bible and tries to beat everybody with it. You're going to go to hell, you sinner. That's not what Jesus did. That's not who Jesus was. You know what's crazy about Jesus? Crazy cool about Jesus? Do you, do you know who, who loved to spend time and be near Jesus? Sinners, drunkards, wine-bibbers, prostitutes, homeless people. I mean, the, 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 the people that, that, that tended to flock to Jesus were broken people. And the people, do you know who Jesus repelled like a magnet turned the wrong way? It was the religious folks. It was the self-righteous. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees who, who couldn't stand Jesus. But again, we want to be Christ-like and we want to be missional. Now, again, I, I said short and then I didn't and I started not to get short here. So I got to shorten this up. Okay, I uh, promise. Look, um, as a church, multifaceted, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so here's what we want to accomplish as a church, right? We want to see people when they come, if they don't know Jesus, we want to share some message with them. We want to present the gospel every Sunday, every opportunity. We never want to miss an opportunity. We may only get it once. So every Sunday, somewhere in the message, somewhere in the day, we want to present the gospel, right, and share the gospel. But on the other hand, if I look around, I see so many, many Christians who have been here for a while, who, who are growing in Jesus, they're already saved, and if all we did every week was share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, with, and a salvation message, and do evangelism, we call it, then, then we we're not reaching the, the Christians. So we also want to teach the word of God in such a way that's next level and that's a little more meaty and that and that helps with the while have some tools equipping the saints to to be disciples that's called making disciples and you know what the bible doesn't actually say anywhere to make believers it says we're supposed to believe and we have the word of God that we might believe but for us as a church the bible says to go Jesus said go and do what disciples and, and being a believer is easy. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is hard. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is the cost of it. And, I, and I, would, I, would, I would get, I would bet, as I look around the room, some of you do church, but, but you haven't decided that you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life over every area of your life and become a real disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and so we, we, we want to do church, and we want, but there's a cost of discipleship. And, you know, here in our church, it's a big deal. We make a big deal of it. We, we really make big efforts to tell people the truth that, that, that 
becoming a believer is, is a salvation. It's important. But after you become a believer, that's just the first step. And then we want to see you become a disciple of Christ. And the cost of discipleship is everything, of being giving and trusting. But I'll tell you, there's nothing better. There's no better place to be in life than be in the will and under the umbrella of God's protection and love as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, if I taught a math class and I had, let's say, kindergarten through eighth grade, and, and, and if I taught my kindergarten through eighth grade math class one plus one, so what's my eighth graders going to think? They're going to be dying. They're going to be bored. They're going to be shooting spit wads at me, you know. But if I teach, if I teach advanced algebra, what's going to happen to my kindergartners? They're going to shoot spit wads at me. They're going to be upset. They're going to be killing each other, pulling each other's hair out. It's going to go so far over their heads. So you, you can't teach math to kindergarten through eighth graders effectively. But yet, in essence, the Bible says that, that as Christ followers, some are, some are babes in Christ, and praise God for them. That's, what we, that's why we exist, is to see people that are far from God be brought near to God. That's our vision here. And, and so when God brings people that are new, and, and maybe new to the faith or new to the church, there, there's a process where they have to grow. And there may be, you know, and I don't want to offend anybody, but there are kindergartners in the analogy. They're new believers. They don't know um, the, the, the basic tenets of Christianity. But, but if, if, if all I did was teach one plus one on Sunday morning in church, I'm going to lose my eighth graders. But if all I did was teach advanced math on Sunday morning and, and, and the, the heavier waiters of the matters of the gospel, then I'm going to lose my kindergartners. So what we have to do as a church, as a people, as a group, as a ministry, and something I try to do very you know, painstakingly, is, is create a message that, that has a little bit for everybody. Amen? A little bit of gospel preaching, a little bit of something where it's salvation message, something that challenges a, a seasoned believer. And, and it's, it's a craft. It's, a, it's difficult sometimes to, to reach the kindergartners and the eighth graders in, in one setting and one message. But again, for us as a ministry, we, we have to have a heart for the lost. We have to be missional. We, we, what are we doing if we're not trying to see people who, far, who are far from God being brought near to God? You know, some churches focus on that. It's called evangelism. They want to see lost people saved, and they're really good at it. And that's great. And, and, and other churches, man, they're discipling churches, and they just they don't do a ton of evangelism, but, man, they're really helping Christians grow and doing advanced Bible studies and teachings, and, and, and Christians are, are being discipled and equipped and trained. And sometimes these two ministries, the discipling ministry and the evangelistic ministry, they throw rocks at each other because unfortunately that's what we do as Christians sometimes. And they say, how come you guys aren't doing more discipling? And how come you guys aren't doing more evangelism? But that, that's not where we want to be. We, we, we want to say, hey, God's gifted them in discipleship. Let them disciple and we'll evangelize. And once we evangelize, we'll send them over there to get discipled. And, and, and we're glad that they're, they're evangelizing because they're making believers and we're not good at that. And then the believers can come here and get discipled. And together in the body of Christ, we do that. Now, Calvary Chapel, you guys, just so you know, our vision is kind of multifaceted. I think what we try to do here is a little bit of both. I don't know how well we do either side, but we, we put a big emphasis on discipling. But we also put an em emphasis on evangelism, and we try to walk the line between being a church that's evangelistic and reaching out to the lost, and also a church that's discipling at the same time. Amen? So I just want to kind of share that vision with you guys. Let's get into our Bible study today. we got lots to cover. Um, hey, Dan, can I, have a, can I have a glass of water, dude? My throat is like dying. Thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so let's look at verse number 69. It says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him, saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. I'm in Matthew chapter 26 in verse 69 and verse 70 says, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the, to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, Peter denied with, a, with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came and said to Peter, Surely you also, thanks brother, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. So Peter, remember the last verse we read at the end of last week's message, where we ended was where Peter followed Jesus as a, at a distance. We were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, I'd like to assign a little bit of homework 
So get out your pens and your papers and, and write this down. I want you to write down John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Um, I, I encourage you guys to take notes um, during the sermons and um, it, it'll help the way you learn. It'll, it'll improve the way that you retain information. And so it's just practice to write some things down. So John 17 is the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we didn't take time as we walked through the Garden of Gethsemane last week to pull out and go to John 17. But I'd like for you to do that. I was going to do it this morning, but um, we're not going to have time. So read John 17. It's the prayer that Jesus prays as he's in the garden. We know what he prayed. He prayed three times. Lord, if this cup um, could pass from me, but nevertheless, not thy will, but your, but your will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. And so Jesus is in the garden. The soldiers come. Judas kisses him. And where we left off last week, they, they were taking him to the house of the high priest to begin at late night, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. They were beginning an illegal trial that was going to go all through the night. The Sanhedrin and the religious rulers of Jesus' day who were in charge were breaking all of their own rules. You were not allowed to have a trial at night. You were not allowed to, to assign capital punishment before a 48-hour deliberation on the, on the verdict. They went through the entire illegal trial starting around midnight and all the way through the morning. And by 9 a.m. the next morning, Jesus was on a cross. And so Jesus is there. He's being led away to Caiaphas' house. And it says that Peter was following at a distance. And that's where we end last week. And we said as Christ followers, obviously, you don't want to follow Jesus at a distance. It's dangerous. And, and, and I see it and I've lived it, you guys. Where, where we want Jesus and we, we know it's true and the God has spoken to us enough in our lives. The Holy Spirit has touched enough of our lives that we're not struggling intellectually with the truth of it, but we're struggling with the practice of it. And, and we're, we're, we're liking and we're doing some things in the world that are, that are breaking the heart of God or that are, that are really affecting us negatively because they're against God's will for us. And God is a good, good father, doesn't want us doing those things. But we like some of those things that we're doing. Sin is fun. If sin wasn't fun, none of us would do it. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. Sin is fun. It's enjoyable for a season. And then you get an invoice from the devil of what he's going to charge you for, the, for what you enjoyed. So it's fun for a season. And, and we like those things, and so we want to follow Jesus at a distance. We want God, but there's things that we're doing where we would be embarrassed if Jesus was sitting next to us. So in essence, we say to Jesus, let's go in the fire room and let's let's you hang out there and, and, and I'll be back. And we want to leave Jesus compartmentalized in our lives in a different area so we can go and have some fun. We don't want him to leave. We don't want to leave him. We just want some time to spend in another room where he not, he is not. And that's following Jesus at a distance. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous what happens as we get outside the umbrella of God's protection for our lives. As we get out the umbrella of, of God caring and loving and guiding and leading the decisions that we make in our life. And so Peter is following Jesus at a distance. And now he comes to the fires and he's trying to blend in and just see what's going on without getting noticed. And a little girl comes to him and says, you are a friend of Jesus. And he begins to curse. And you know what the... What the um, uh, the, the, the reputation of sailors is that they can curse pretty good, right? That's why we say he curses like a sailor. Well, Peter was a sailor, and I'm sure he knew how to curse pretty well. And the fact that he had no qualms cursing at a little girl is a problem. And that's the, the, the condition that Peter is in following Jesus at a distance. And he begins to curse, and he begins to get mad, and he goes up and up, and she comes back a second time. You are with Jesus. Your speech betrays you. Peter spoke with a certain accent. And it came from the area of Galilee. You know, I know anybody that speaks with an accent? How about Don Corleone? Hey, I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> Horse heads to the bed. Um, somebody from New York? Hey, give me a cool. Give me a cool. How about from Louisiana, where my family's from? In Louisiana, when my uncle wants me to roll the window up, we're driving in the car, he wants me to roll the window up. He says, hey, Chris, put some glass in that hole. <laughs> roll the window up. When he wants to ask me if I've been lifting weights or if I've been working out, he, he comes over. You know, my, my uncle Henry, amazing guy. He's always trying to encourage me, you know, say something, make me laugh. And he'd say, Chris, 
Chris, you look good. You say, you been picking up them weights, boy? That's his way of asking me if I've been working out, picking up weights. You been picking up weights? Don't get me started. I was going to start telling Cajun jokes. But um, <laughs> your, your speech betrays you. And, and, and he spoke with a certain accent, Peter did. And, and so they knew that he was a, a, a man from the Galilee. And Peter is getting more and more upset. He's, he's doing something that starts with following Jesus at a distance. And then it, it reaches the point where he's warming himself at the enemy's fires. I'll tell you where you don't want to be in life. You don't want to warm yourself in the enemy's fires. And then the little girl comes to him and he begins to deny that he even knows Jesus. Can you imagine in your life if a coworker, if a friend, if a family member says, hey, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? And you said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't even know that guy. Denying Jesus and Peter who, who becomes or is and for all of, an etern- all of eternity an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you know that Peter's name is written on the foundations of heaven? In the book of Revelation, it says that, that the, the, the walls of, the, of heaven, New Jerusalem, have 12 foundations. And upon the foundations are written the names of the apostles, the 12 apostles, each with their own name. And on the 12 walls, the 12 gates, that's the names of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter's name, for all of eternity, that's eternal heaven. For all of eternity, Peter's name is written on the foundation to the city of heaven. And Peter is there denying Jesus. And he begins to curse at this little girl and say, I don't know the man. Now, you remember that um, Jesus predicted and told Peter, Peter, you know, I remember Peter, he stood up. He said, Lord, even if all these deny you, I'll never deny you. I'll even die for you. And then he tried to prove it in the garden. He took out his sword and he, and he tried to fight 600 Roman soldiers. Thankfully, Jesus didn't let that happen. And Jesus healed Malchus's ear and told Peter, put his sword away. And now Peter is getting ready to remember what Jesus said when he said, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. Now, you know, some of the things we see in the Bible, we, we don't think twice about it. But I want to tell you, um, remember two weeks ago we read and Jesus told the disciples, go into the city and you'll find a man where you're going to prepare the upper room. What did, what did he say you would find the man doing? Anybody remember? Doing what, Jay? Carrying water. Yeah, carrying water. When you see a man carrying water, that's the guy I want you to go up to and tell him we're going to use his, his house for the, upper, the Last Supper. But it was, it was um, very unnormal, even like in Africa, men don't carry water. Women carry water in the other cultures. And, and so with the, with the rooster or the cock crowing three times, or the cock crowing before Peter denies three times, the city was, especially around Temple Mount and around Jerusalem area, the city was scrubbed of the, of the roosters and the chickens because during Passover and during the holy days in Israel and the celebration feast, they didn't want anything defiling their, the, the holy days. And so they would remove all of the roosters from and anything that made noise like that, the animals, so that it would be quiet and it would give peace of God. And so there shouldn't even have been any roosters there. So that was a miracle in itself. And in verse 73, or in verse 74, it says, Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Now, um, the other gospel tells us that um, at this moment, Jesus was being led away. And, And as Jesus was being led away, and Peter is there cursing at the little girl, he hears the cock crow. He remembers the words of Jesus, and at that point, as Jesus is walking by, he makes eye contact with Peter. And what do you think Jesus' eyes said to Peter? You dirty, rotten scoundrel. How could you deny me? Wait till they take me out of these handcuffs. (laughs) Nobody was holding Jesus in handcuffs. I'm positive, I'm positive that Jesus said to Peter with his eyes, Peter, I love you. Peter, I love you, man. I so love you, dude. You're going to be all right. We're going to work this out. I love you. You know what Jesus said? After Jesus died on the cross, he rose again. Um, he didn't see Peter originally. First, he saw the women. And he, and he told the women who came to the tomb. And, and Jesus first appeared to, to Mary. And, um, and he said to her, go and tell the disciples that I'm here. And Peter. Why? 
because Jesus loved Peter so much, man. And Jesus was reaching out to Peter. Jesus knew that Peter needed a little extra attention in this moment. He was discouraged. He was bummed out. He went out in this moment and he wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly? To weep bitterly. I've wept bitterly at my own sin at times. And here Peter is weeping in his own sins. Not, you know, I've wept bitterly at other times for other reasons. But when you weep bitterly for your own sin, when, when, when your heart breaks because of what you've done and, and it's not what you want to do, it's not who you want to be, it's, it's called repentance, the Bible says. And for every one of us as Christians, listen, so important. I taught this Wednesday night. Uh, you know, I'd like for you guys, if you don't come Wednesday nights, to try to keep up with us because um, it goes with our Sunday mornings. Um, but we taught the heart and the idea of repentance on Sunday night and what true repentance is. And on, Sunday, on Wednesday night, we looked at King David, who teaches the heart of, of true repentance. And King David was caught in a sin, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he calls him on his sin. And David, in this moment in his life, he writes Psalm 51. And he says, God, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. God, search my heart and see if there be any wickedness in me. Restore in me a steadfast spirit, O God. Lord, sacrifice you do not desire or else I would have given it, but a broken and a contrite heart, that, O Lord, you desire. And David is repentant and David committed some terrible sins, but his heart is broken and he gets to this point where he weeps bitterly over his sin and he asks God to forgive him. He asks God to, 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 to wash him clean. And listen, for all of us, it, it's a common, it's an everyday practice. The rabbis say it's a conduit that, that, that carries electricity and it constantly lives between you and God. Confession and repentance. And that as you, as you break the God's laws and God's heart and you, you do things in your life that are sin, you ask God's forgiveness. But you know what? True repentance is, is, is different than, than being sorry you got caught. And God knows the difference. And what God desires in you is a broken and a contrite spirit. Listen, if you feel in your life and in your heart over some sins you've committed, condemnation, and it's something that, 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 that is pushing you away from God, I want to tell you that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's not from God. The Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes what, what the Bible says, you know the number one job of the Holy Spirit? The Bible tells us, Jesus told us words in red. He said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sins. We call it the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job is to gently and, and, or strongly or violently, whatever way he needs to, tell you that, that, that what you've done is sin in your life and convict you of that sin. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of drawing you and calling you and making you more Christ-like. And as the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, 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 you need to know and have and understand a biblical heart of repentance. It's how we relate to God. It's how we relate to each other, right? If your husband and your wife does something dumb, now my wife doesn't understand what that is because I've never done anything dumb before. She hasn't figured that out yet, but one day she will. But it, it, how do you make it right? You go and, and you apologize and you say, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that anymore. Please forgive me. And we, we do things to make our relationship right with our husbands, our wives, with our friends when we make mistakes. And with God, it's no different. We, we have to understand and we have to develop a real heart of repentance. And believe me, my wife knows when it's phony. She knows if I've come to her and I've, I've told her, you know, or I just want to get by or, you know, and, and, and she knows when I'm sincere. And God knows when we're sincere. But God wants you to have a heart that, that just loves him. And if you do, it's, you'll be broken. Now, um, th there's, there's a trick because everything that God does, Satan has a counterfeit for. So what Satan does in your life is Satan brings condemnation. Somebody say Romans 8.1. You guys all have that verse memorized, right? Let's repeat it together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So when, when you hear that voice convicting you of sin and you feel like the voice says to you, you're unworthy. How do you, how do you even call yourself a Christian? Why do you even pick up that Bible? 
Why do you even pray? What voice is that? That's Romans 8, 1 voice. Condemnation. Right? How do you know? Because that voice pushes you away from the things of God. And what that voice tells you is is to not do the things of God because you're unworthy. That's not God. That's the devil. You can shut that voice up. You can kick that voice in the mouth and say, shut your mouth. You're stupid. Shut up. That's how I talk to the devil. No, I'm just kidding. I don't talk to the devil. I never talk to the devil. I talk to Jesus. Let him talk to the devil for me. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit, how do I know the difference? Because if, if it's the Holy Spirit convicting my heart, the, the, the voice says to me, repent, pray, seek God, spend some time with the Lord, open your Bible. And, and the voice is calling me toward God to do the things of God. And then I very easily can know that the voices in my head, whether they're condemnation or the real work of conviction of the Holy Spirit. So Peter is greatly convicted here of the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes out. And like King David, Psalm 51, Psalm 32, he begins to weep bitterly. And he begins to repent. And then it says, um, now on to chapter 27. Let's get into 27 a little bit today. We'll maybe do half of it. It says, um, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And then Judas... His betrayer, seeing he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So look at verse 3. It says it says that Judas was remorseful. Haven't I already told you guys before that we are not the judge of anybody's salvation? But I can tell you unequivocally that that Judas Iscariot is in hell. He's not in heaven. The Bible says for you and I as Christians, we're not to judge anybody's salvation. You don't know. Jerry Garcia, who was the lead singer of the Grateful Dead, when he died, I tweeted, he's not so gratefully dead anymore. That's wrong. That's not true. I don't know. He could have got saved. If I, if, I was, if I knew the life of the thief on the cross, I would have tweeted that the thief on the cross when he died is not so, it's not so grateful anymore. But the thief on the cross had a deathbed conversion and did what? He went to heaven. He got saved. So the Bible tells us we don't know who's saved. But I'll tell you, we do know one person. You can be dogmatic about one person. Jesus said it would be better for him had he not even been born. Jesus told you in as much and and over and over that Judas did not go to heaven. Well, what does this mean that he was remorseful? Didn't he repent here? No, it's completely different. God, man looks on the outside. What does God look upon? God looks upon the heart. And, and even though it says that, that Judas Iscariot was remorseful, it's not a godly repentance that leads unto any kind of salvation or victory or forgiveness. You know, the jails are full of people who are sorry. Sorry I got caught. Right? They're, they're not sorry that they did it. They're sorry they got caught. And, and, and so in... Um, In these two cases, we see the difference between um, Judas Iscariot who goes out and he's remorseful, but he he's not repentant. And Peter who goes out bitterly and God radically changes his life and says in verse four, saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver at, at the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Peter committed suicide would be a good sorry (laughs) yeah yeah that's okay you know i i always have like moses on the boat and i have uh noah on top of mount sinai and but you guys are tracking good thing you guys are tracking yeah um peter didn't hang himself judas judas did now again we on another day and another sunday maybe we, we we would unpack here suicide a little bit um, we're not going to today. The Bible records um, only two suicides that I'm, I'm aware of. Ahithophel um, also went out and hung himself. Uh, he was an advisor to David. He sat at David's table. Uh, we've been studying that, uh, coincidentally enough, on Wednesday nights with um, in Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel. But Ahithophel is a forerunner for Judas Iscariot. He's a type 
of Judas Iscariot. He betrays David, who's a, who's a type of Jesus, and then he goes out and hangs himself. Um, you know, some people say Saul, Saul fell on his own spear. Um, Samson, Samson committed suicide, but I, I don't think it's in the same category. Um, Saul was in a battle, and he was mortally wounded, and, and he finished himself off. And then later it says that when the Malachite gave testimony that he killed Saul, we don't know which is true, which, which really happened if the Malachite was lying or telling the truth. But, but we see Ahithophel, and we see here um, Judas Iscariot, who went out and hung himself. Now, I will point out really quickly, um, in Acts, Peter is, talking, um, is going to try to replace Judas Iscariot. Now, Peter jumps the gun a little bit, and the disciples gathered in the early room. The Holy Spirit fell. The church was born, and they began to do the early church. And there was only 11 of them, and they knew there were supposed to be 12. And so Peter got them together, and they found a few guys that had the, the, the right criteria, and they cast lots to see which one they would choose. And the lot fell on a guy named Matthias. And so they chose Matthias to take Judas's place. The problem was God didn't pick Matthias. And you never hear about him before that or after that. He disappears off the face of history. But the one that God was raising up to take Judas's place wasn't even a Christian yet. He was a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, a student of Gamaliel, who later his name would be changed to Paul, the apostle who was going to take Judas's place. And he's the 12th apostle, the apostle Paul. He takes Judas's place. But Peter's explaining to the guys, the 11, hey, Judas fell. And in Acts it says, and when Peter's telling the story, it says Judas fell headlong down the side of a mountain and his entrails spilled out. And some people say, oh, you see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. It says in the Gospels that he hung himself, and Peter said that he, he fell down the side of a mountain and his entrails spilled out. Which is it? Do, do you think Peter, who was here this day, who knew what happened, somehow missed how Judas died? Of course not. Peter was there. Peter was the one speaking in the book of Acts. Apparently, if we put two and two together... Judas hung himself on a tree branch. The tree branch broke. It was probably hanging over the side of a hill or close enough to it that when his body hit the ground, it rolled down the side of a mountain where there was jagged rocks that cut him and his entrails fell out. But that's how Peter died. Committed suicide. (laughs) I'm just making sure you guys are awake. I know who died. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's how Judas died. He hung himself. Um, all right. How you guys doing? We got, my clock says 19 minutes. That feels like a long time. I'm liking this. All right, 11.06. Um, all right, so let's look at where we at. Where we at? Say again. Six. All right, so in verse seven. No, I'm just kidding. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury um, strangers in. And therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord had directed them. So these are the um, prophesied in the Old Testament that the 30 pieces of silver, that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that the, the money would be given back and would be sold or be used to buy a potter's field. It's called Akeldama, the place of blood. Um, and so that's exactly what happened, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Judas gives the money back. The, San, uh, the Sanhedrin, they say that's blood money and we can't put it back in the treasury. And they used it to buy a potter's field where they were going to bury strangers. A potter's field was literally exactly what it says. It's a potter's field. It was a place where they would throw the, um, the, the pottery shards and it would ruin the ground. You couldn't farm it. You couldn't do anything with it. You couldn't kill it. You couldn't build on it. It was just a wasted piece of ground. And so I guess they could dig holes in it. Or, or maybe they didn't dig holes like we do today. They don't bury people the way we do today. Even in Israel to this day, they bury them above the ground in like these um, uh, stone boxes, coffins. In verse 11, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the gover- governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, 
Somebody. It is as you say. Was Jesus the king of the Jews? Is Jesus the king of kings and lord of lords? That's what he said. Amen, right? Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is um, the, the king. You know, one of my favorite verses of, about Jesus and about Jerusalem, it says, and I don't know what it is about it, but I just love it. It makes me kind of feel like, I don't know. But it's, it says that, that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And so in that, Jesus is the great king. And he said, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now part of the, um, part of the prophecy in the Old Testament that had to be fulfilled is that Jesus would not answer his accusers. And so there, we will find some places where that is filled and Jesus is absolutely silent before his accusers. And there's another place where Jesus does give answers and does say things. And here in this case, he, he's going before two different um, um, acting high priests at the time, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, one of them was the high priest. One of them was the, his son-in-law was the acting high priest. Annas was the big baller. He was the boss. He was like the Don Corleone of, uh, of Jerusalem of his day. He was a gangster. He became very rich and very wealthy. And he was the one who, who Jesus was turning over his business in the temple. Do you remember Jesus went into the temple several times and turned the tables over because the, 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 the priests were getting very rich, robbing all the million people that would come to the temple every year at Passover to make sacrifice. And so Annas had become very wealthy and rich, and he turns it over to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the acting high priest. And as Jesus is going back and forth between them, and it says in verse 15, it says, Now the feast of the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Do you guys have your margin there? Do you have... Uh, um, Reference margin Bible. If you have a reference margin Bible next to verse 16 in your reference, it'll say Jesus Barabbas. The word bar in, in, in Hebrew means son of. What does the word Abba mean in Hebrew? Father. So Barabbas's name, Bar Abba, Barabbas is son of the father. His first name was a very common name in, in, in Jesus's day. Anybody take, I already told you, but what Barabbas's first name was? It was Jesus. Today, that would be very equivalent to Joshua. Do we have any Joshuas in here today? Nobody? No Joshuas today. All right, I bet you we got about seven Brians, though. <laughs> Brian is like a Utah thing. Um, so Jesus Barabbas is his name, son of the father. And it says that He was a notorious prisoner. And in verse 17, it says, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Do you know why? Um, you know the world, Jesus said, If they hated me first, they're going to hate you. And I want to tell you, the world's going to hate you. And, and don't take it personal. Don't be offended by it. If people don't like you, if it's because of your genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that's to be expected. And Jesus warned you of this. He encouraged you in saying that, that people are going to hate you, but, that, but he deflected from you. and He said, put it on me. He said, don't worry. They don't hate you. They hate me. And because I'm in you, they're, they're going to hate you. There was a guy who had a testimony that, um, you know, that, that, that he saw hell. And he asked Jesus in this, in this vision, why did the demons hate me so bad? And Jesus said, they didn't hate you. They hate me. And because I'm in you, they treated you bad and they hated you. But it's me that they hate. And it says that Jesus, they, they hated Jesus. And he tells us one of the reasons why here in verse 18, because of envy. In verse 17, did you notice that we're going to be presented here with a choice? We're going to have to, and the people of this day are going to have to choose between Jesus, Son of the Father, or Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And Pontius Pilate has put this decision before the people. And in verse 19, it says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, Pontius Pilate, by this point, is in big trouble. You guys know... Um, God has given women a supernatural intuition. 
Women, women just can sense things that, that men can't, right? You know, my wife is, is super good at it. We'll, we'll meet with somebody sometime and have a meeting, you know, church or life or whatever, and we'll leave and I'll be like, oh, that went great. And she'll be like, no, it didn't. I'm like, they love me. She's like, no, they don't. They can't stand you. I'm like, really? Really? She's like, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't tell? I'm like, no, I missed that. Like, I think they love me. She's like, no, they don't love you. Because she can, she can sense things. She has an intuition. As we raise teenage boys, you know, my wife just knows certain things that I miss. You know, the, the problem that, that women have, though, is that, I don't know if it's a problem, I guess, but it's maybe another gift, right? You know, it's scientific that women think with both sides of their brain at the same time. I think that's why they're always confused, right? <laughs> they, um, they, they, they're emotional, right? They, they, they think with emotional decisions, but part of the gifting that God created them in his likeness, in the image of God, we were created male and female. And God didn't make a mistake when he made a man. He didn't make a mistake when he made a woman. He gave the woman half of his strengths and some of his qualities, and he gave the man, and he said the two should come together and be one flesh. And this, this, the, the Pontius' wife comes to him, and she perceives that, that Jesus is a just man, and she's also been visited by the Holy Spirit in a dream. And she tells Pontius Pilate, don't have anything to do with this just man. Now let me tell you real briefly something about Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the sixth, sixth governor of the area of Judah, Judea, Jerusalem, Israel. Rome was occupying, and, and really lots of the known world, right, that Rome had, had conquered. And, and so he was a governor sent from Rome to oversee one of the Roman territories, which was Israel and Jerusalem. He was the sixth one that had gotten there. He, he wasn't a very um, accomplished person. He was actually a fighter in the Roman army, and, and he didn't necessarily promote well. He actually married well. And he married Caesar Augustus's granddaughter. And so, and so the, 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 the guru of Rome, the Augusta of Rome, assigned him and his granddaughter to be the governors of a, of a territory under their control called Jerusalem and Israel. And so when Pontius Pilate first came into Israel as the new governor, as you guys know, if you've seen any of the movies, it's all accurate in that point that the, the Roman soldiers, when they, when they march, when they travel, just like we have on, on some of our flagpoles, we have that eagle that sits on top of our flagpoles, and we would have a signet and a staff, and, and we have a, a symbol. Well, Rome had symbols. They had a giant eagle that, that was on top of their, their staffs. What do you call those staffs? They're not called a staff. A standard is what they're called. On top of their standards would be that Roman eagle. And on their shields would be a bust of Augustus. And so when they would come into Israel, the Jews said it was idolatry to bring that stuff on holy ground. And the five previous governors would remove those things out of respect for the Jews. And when Pontius Pilate rolled into town for the first time as the new governor, he was haughty and arrogant. And he said, I'm a Roman governor and we will not remove the, the, the symbols from our, from our standards. And he rode into Jerusalem and, and neared the Temple Mount with, with those, those idolatrous things. The Jews revolted. And they said it was idolatry. And a thousand Jews came and met with Pontius Pilate in the stadium. And Pontius Pilate said, I'm the Roman governor, and if you don't like it, I will take off every one of your heads. And to the man, a thousand Jews removed their garments, and they stuck their necks out, and they said, take our heads off, and tomorrow 10,000 more will be here. And, and Pontius Pilate knew, and he had to back down. And word got back to Rome that the, the Jews had, had um, beat him that the Jews had gotten over on him. And the one thing that Rome didn't want was any kind of civil unrest in their territories. And so Pontius Pilate had a strike, a strike against him from the Caesar in, in, in Rome. And then, in order to make up for it and amends for this problem, he wanted to build an aqueduct system in Jerusalem and in Israel. And they needed an aqueduct system. It was a massive project. It was a great project. It's there to this day. It's phenomenal. But what he did was he went into the temple and he took the treasuries um, from the temple of God and he used them to fund it. And again, the Jews revolted because he used temple treasury to build his aqueduct 
and they went to Rome. And basically, Rome sent a message back to Pontius Pilate, strike one, strike two, on the third strike, you're out. So he has this political pressure on him. And now the Jews are are threatening another revolt. He can't afford it. He's in a position politically that he has to um, save his own skin. Not only that, weighing down on top of this pressure that he's feeling, his wife comes to him with her womanly intuition and tells him to, to not have anything to do with Jesus. Let's see how, what Pontius does. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Can you imagine? Barabbas was a murderer. He was, it says he was a notorious criminal. Who's a notorious criminal in our day? Ted Bundy? Somebody like that? Somebody who's notorious? The, yeah. And, and this guy was a murderer, an insurrectionist, a rabble rouser. He was a bad person. And, and yet the, the crowd so hated Jesus... They wanted to let this guy out, and they eventually did. How many of you guys seen the movie, Christian movie Risen? So good. The first scene, they let, they let Barabbas out, and like in the first day, he's already causing more trouble and starting riots, and the Roman soldiers have to go and rearrest him because they have, he's already causing trouble after they let him go. But, but they said to him in verse 22, Pilate said, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Somebody say, Amen. Listen, verse 22 is a question every one of us have to answer. Verse 22 is the difference in your life between heaven and hell. And you know, this same question is poised for us several times in the Bible. And Pontius Pilate here in his own life and in your life and in my life, he says, what then shall I do with Jesus who is the Christ? What are you going to do with Jesus who is the Christ? Are you going to put him in a box? Are you going to receive him in your life as your Lord and Savior? You know, so many people... Maybe you want to receive Jesus, but not the Jesus of the scriptures, their own made up version of Jesus, of who they think he is or who they think he isn't. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do err, having not known the holy scriptures, that you missed it. And so who are you or who am I or what am I going to do with Jesus? That, that question has eternal implications. You know, in life and in ministry, we can, we can disagree on lots of things and we can get lots of things um, right and wrong. I can have lots of things in my theology and my life as a Christian wrong and be okay. You know, I can, I can, whether I baptize right or whether we speak in tongues right or wrong or whether we have our theology of, of demons and angels right or wrong and um, whether we have um, lots of theologies right and wrong, we're, we'll be okay. It's not, it's not important. But who Jesus is and what we do with Jesus is absolutely important. It is a difference between heaven and hell. You know, you can't, you can't think you're going, to go to, you're going to go to heaven in Jesus' name and you got the wrong Jesus. And you don't have the Jesus of the scriptures. It's just not going to work. You know, I had a... Um, oh, I'll skip it because i got to go on. Um, you know, this, this same question, right, Jesus asked. Do you remember when Jesus gathered with his disciples um, at Caesarea Philippi in Peter's defining moment in his life? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter said, you hear that guy? Father in heaven speaks to me. It was Peter's moment. It was his day in the hot sun. Well, on that day, as they gathered at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you're a prophet, others say you're a good man and a teacher. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And the answer to that question really defines your eternity. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's when Jesus crowned Peter and said that, that Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. So Pontius Pilate gives us the biggest choice in our life. And, and they said to him, he said, what should I do with the Christ? And their answer sad, right? Let him be crucified. And then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they, they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent 
of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Pontius realized that Jesus was just. Jesus had done no crimes. They really had no crimes to accuse him of. The only crime that they had to accuse him of was when the high priest just in the last chapter asked him he was God. He said, yes, it is as you say. The high priest tore his clothes and he said, we have no further need to, to, to accuse him any further. He's committed blasphemy. Now, now, the Jews did not have the right to capital punishment. When it became an occupied Roman territory, they lost legally their right to capital punishment. Now, we know, right, as you, as you process that, you think, well, hold on. Didn't, didn't the Pharisees throw that woman at Jesus' feet and, and say to stone her because she was caught in the very act of adultery? In the book of Acts, in, in a few months, in a few years, doesn't, isn't Saul standing there while they, they kill the first martyr of the early church, Stephen, by stoning him to death? So the Jews still did. So apparently, they, they, they threw one in here and there. Maybe just apart from, from the Roman soldiers or Roman government knowing it. But the, the, the Jewish way of execution was what? Stoning. Some of you guys like that, huh? I want to do stoning. I want to get stoned. No, I'm just kidding. If you if you want to, I forget. Somebody used to tell me if you want to, if you have to go, if you want to smoke dope, light your hair on fire, you'll be a smoking dope. So the stoning, but the um, the the Romans that wasn't their form of crucifixion. I wasn't their form of capital punishment. Their form of cap punishment was crucifixion. But what, is, what did the entire Old Testament say about Jesus? He would die how? He would die on a tree. And he would die on a Roman crucifixion. And so if the Jews carried out, in this case, like they did in other cases, their own backdoor um, capital punishment, it wouldn't fulfill prophecy. So they have to get the Roman government involved, and they have to get the Roman government to agree to crucify Jesus. Because at that point, he would become a Roman prisoner. And he didn't break any Roman laws. He didn't break any laws, we know. But he was being accused of breaking laws according to Jewish custom. And so Pontius Pilate says, I wash my hands of this just man. Let me ask you a question, and we'll close in a minute. Can you wash your hands of the blood of Jesus? Can you just ignore and just say, I don't want to make a decision. I'm, just, I'm innocent of this. Leave me alone. I don't have to make a decision. You will have to make a decision. You can't wash your hands of the blood. You can't wash your hands of that decision. And this choice, Pontius Pilate was given a choice what to do with Jesus. And he tried to take a neutral stance. I washed my hands of this innocent man's blood. And you guys see to it. But you can't do that. You have to make a choice. You know, the Bible says, pretty interesting, right? And, and we, we try not to live this too much or unpack this too much. Be, I guess because it's, it, it, it can be accusatory. But Jesus said, listen, the Bible says, either you're for me or you're against me. It's that simple. Really? Are you for God? Are you for Jesus? Because if you're not, there is no middle ground. There is no washing your hands. If you're not for him, you're against him. How many of you guys want to be against Jesus? Against God? Yeah, don't raise your hand. Because then I'll judge you. I don't want to judge you. I'm not called to judge you. I'm called to love you. I want to love you, so don't raise your hand. Um, but anyways, we don't want to be against God. None of us want to be against God. And so here we, in verse 24, it says, When Pilate saw he could no prevail, wash his hands, um, and the people said, verse 25, and answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So we'll stop there today. We'll pick up in verse 27 next week. Now, um, it says that when they had released Barabbas, he had scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. This place in Israel where Jesus was scourged. Now, this scourging that, that Jesus is about to receive from Pontius Pilate is um, part of his sentence was to be beaten with the cat of nine tails 39 times. The sentence was 40, but because they were merciful, it was minus one, so you got 39. And, and the way that they would do this, and if you, you guys seen the Passion of the Christ, the, the Roman soldiers got really worked up, and it was, it was so laborious, the beating, that they had to have two different... Roman soldiers, one on either side of him taking turns, and they had to be switched out. And the, and the Roman soldiers were getting more and more angry. And it says that Jesus was in this scourging that we just read in just a brief sentence in this verse, 
was, a, was done with a cat of nine tails. It would have had some kind of handle, wooden handle, leather handle. And there would have been nine leather straps that came off of it. And to the tip of each of the strap, they would put little pieces of, of glass or shards or, or something sharp, metal, on the tips of them. And as they would throw them over your back and pull them off your back, they would stick in and they would rip parts of your flesh off of your back to the point where your organs could be exposed. Many people died during the scourging. And because it was so painful, it was the way that the Romans would extract confessions from their people. And so as they began to hit you, every crime that you confessed to, they would, they would take lashes off. And Jesus had nothing to confess, so he took all 39 stripes, all 39 lashes from a cat of nine tails. The place where they beat him was on the Roman Praetorium. It was, it was in the Antonio Fortress, at the bottom of the Antonio Fortress. And again, in your mind's eye, if you can see the Temple Mount, where Solomon's Temple would have been in the day of Jesus. And on the corner there, there where the Roman occupation was, they built up pretty tall a place called the Antonio Fortress. It was their military base. They wanted it up tall because they could see what the Jews were doing and they could see around the Mount of Olives. They could see around the Kidron Valley and they were up high. And so they had built that. And on the base level of that, right there on Temple Mount, next to Solomon's Temple, on the ground floor was a place called the Praetorium where Jesus was brought to be scourged, where the very blood of Jesus would have, would have covered and and, and the floor and everything around it. And they took turns whipping him before they delivered him up and put a cross beam upon his back. And he left the praetorium at the, at, the, at the Antonio Fortress. And he left from there. They put the cross upon his back after he had been beaten miserably. They had already, we already read, where they put bags on his face and punched him and ripped his beard out and spit on him. And, and he's already been traumatically beaten this way, put the crown of thorns on his head. They cast lots for his clothes. And now they, 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 they put him, um, sometimes they would lift you off the ground as well as they, as they whipped you across the back. And Jesus took all 39 to the point where they had to rotate soldiers in to be able to perform it. He would have left there and he would have headed to the place of Calvary. The word Calvary means skull. Calvary is, the Greek word is Golgotha. It just means skull. It's where we get the name of our church from. The place of Calvary, Calvary Chapel. It's the place where Jesus died. And he would have led there, and the place from the Praetorium to Calvary is a, is a famous stretch of road called the Via Dolorosa. And it's still there today. The Praetorium, and one of the coolest things we do when we go to Israel, and one of the most emotional places that I've ever been in all of Israel, is the actual stone cobble floor that was there in Jesus' day. It's still there in the floor of the Praetorium. There's a mosaic on it. They found some knuckle bones there. Because it says that the, 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 the soldiers played dice for his clothing. They cast lots for his clothing. And they literally, we call them knuckle bones, because literally they would use human knuckle bones for dice because they were six-sided. But that place in the Praetorium, we gather there when we're in Israel. And you just feel something. You just know from the Holy Spirit that this is the place. And when you stand in the place, and it's, it's there and it's preserved to this day, the very place where Jesus was scourged and beaten, it's just moving. And you thank God and you give God glory and you remember what happened there. It's a moving place to go when we're in Israel. And so we, uh, we're done. Let's stand. I want to give you guys an opportunity today to pray. I want to give you an opportunity today. Um, we're not going to have a last song today, guys. So, uh, right? Yeah. So um, I want you guys to uh, give you an opportunity to pray this morning. And if anybody um, wants to get right with the Lord... Maybe you're not sure if you're a born-again believer in here today. Maybe you don't know if you're a Christian. You're not totally 100% positive what would happen to you if you died today. It's as simple as trusting and believing on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. And yes, it is that simple. It's not, it's not all you have to do. It's all you have to do at the beginning. is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. To ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. To realize that you need a Savior. Not because you're a bad person, but because you have sin. But we all have sin. And something has to be done with your sin. And, and, and the blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can wash away our sins. You know, through this whole process, the verse that God keeps giving us over and over and over again as we watch the last hours of Jesus' life is that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become righteousness of God. Crazy powerful verse. Jesus who knew no sin became sin 
so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. How do you become the righteousness of God? What is the righteousness of God? It's right standing with God. How do you receive right standing with God? Jesus gave you that opportunity as he died upon a cross and he rose again on the third day. And you receive it by faith. And you receive the free gift that Jesus gave and ask Jesus to come into your life. You give Jesus your life. You say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. And you can become the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen. If you've never done that, I want to pray for you now. If you've already done that, then um, we want to give you opportunity to, to recommit, to grow, and just pray with us together. Let's pray together out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to become the righteousness of God. I want to receive the free gift of salvation. I realize I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. I believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. I ask you to come into my heart. I give you my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. We love you guys. Have a great week.